welcome to Global Crossings, a podcast produced by the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Thank you for joining us today for Global Britain and what it means for Ireland, the European Union, and the transatlantic relationship. Today's guest, Tom Dugenhat, MP, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Commons, joins Dr. Robert Morrow, Director of Global Leadership Institute of Boston College, to discuss leadership and global Britain. Britain's important role in the world and its economic and political relationships with Ireland, Europe, and the United States will be addressed. In 2015, the minister was elected as Member of Parliament for Tonbridge, Edinburgh, and Malling, and was honored to have been re-elected in 2017 and 2019. In Parliament, Tom sat on the Speaker's Advisory Committee of Works of Art of the House of Commons, and in July 2017 was elected Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee which he also chairs in this current parliament. Prior to serving in Westminster, Tom was a journalist in Beirut covering regional conflicts, politics, and economics. In 2003, Tom was mobilized as an Arabic-speaking intelligence officer in the Royal Marines. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he helped to establish the National Security Council providing strategic advice to President Karzai. Enjoy the podcast, adapted from a previously recorded webinar. Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, people are filtering into the room here at uh, just a little bit uh, quarter past 12 in Chestnut Hill and quarter past five. Um, and uh, we'll be here with Tom Tugendhat, um, Member of Parliament. Uh, but before we begin the discussion, I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Peter Abbott. Uh, Peter recently came to Boston as a Consul General um, from the United Kingdom to New England. Uh, before coming to us in Boston, he served in Islamabad. Uh, prior to that, he was in Lisbon, um, and he also served in Washington, D.C. He's had a briefing as well in counterterrorism and countering um, extremism, working with uh, the U.K. Home Office and uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Um, he also has deep American connections, and uh, I'll let Peter talk a little bit about that, but he worked for uh, Dennis Haster for a spell, as well as Ariana Huffington. Um, Peter is also an academic. Uh, he's a PhD uh, from Cambridge in Greek tragedy. So what else would you do but um, serve the, uh, the British Foreign Office? Peter, uh, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you here uh, today to say a few words. And thank you for uh, your help in, in arranging this um, session with Tom. Great, Bob. Um, well, thank you very much for the very generous uh, introduction. It's great to be here virtually at Boston College again, which has for many years been such a good friend uh, at the consulate here in Boston. Um, over the last four years, I found myself explaining to um, diplomatic contacts on countless occasions, well, this is it, sort of this is the defining moment uh, for the UK's relationship with Europe, whether that's been a European Council meeting, the passing of a deadline or a vote in the British Parliament. It's felt like the last four years have been replete with these kind of key, <laughs> these key landmarks. I think um, this week we find ourselves at perhaps and probably uh, the last uh, of these landmarks, um, the question of whether at the 11th hour the UK and the EU can agree uh, a, a free trade agreement, um, which makes this uh, a perfect week uh, to hear from our guest uh, today, who is well placed to talk not just about the UK's relationship with the EU, but also with, with Ireland, uh, which is a particular uh, resonance here in Boston and particularly uh, Boston College, um, and with the United States as we anticipate uh, a new administration in Washington um, uh, starting in January. Tom Tugendhat is the Conservative Member of Parliament for the constituency of Tunbridge and Malling in the southeast of England and chairman since 2017 of the Foreign Affairs Committee 
uh, in the House of Commons. Under his chairmanship of the committee, uh, they focused on the UK's relationship with China, India, Russia, and of course the UK's foreign policy after Brexit. I should also say the Foreign Affairs Committee is charged with scrutinising uh, the Foreign Office, uh, my employer, uh, which recently merged with the Department of International Development to form the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. It's a great, it's a great privilege and a pleasure uh, to pass over the floor now to Mr. Tugendhat and to say, Tom, welcome to Boston. Look, thank you very much. The last time I was in Boston, I was covered in uh, lobsters and, uh, and, and butter and trying to get as much of your main island lobster down me as possible on, I think it was Pier 49, 61, I can't remember what number it is now, but, uh, but, uh, but on the harbour and, and enjoying uh, all the joys of New England. And it's a great sadness to me that I'm not with you. Uh, physically, Boston College uh, has an extraordinary history and reputation well-earned over literally centuries. So uh, I hope very much that you'll invite me uh, to come in person someday. But look, this has been a, an extraordinary few years for uh, the UK and indeed for our closest ally in the United States. And uh, what we're seeing at the moment is really uh, fascinating, I think, for those of us who observe foreign policy, but I think challenging as well for those of us who are trying to make it. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing a change in the world. Now, we've obviously, because that's who we are, we've focused on our own interests. Here in the United Kingdom, we focused on uh, where our government is going and what our relationship to the European Union is like. And in the United States, very understandably, you've uh, focused on the change uh, into and then now out of uh, the Trump administration. But actually, this isn't just about us. This is actually about global movements of which we are a part, but of which we are not the whole. If you look at the rise of nationalism, you could easily talk about Trump and Brexit, of course, but you could just as easily talk about things like Putin or uh, uh, India's uh, Modi, or you could indeed talk about Erdogan in Turkey, or perhaps most importantly, you could talk about General Secretary Xi. All of them are showing a greater uh, emphasis on the national and a lowering importance of the multinational. And so I think that we're going through one of those moments where the world is fundamentally changing. And now I know uh, that uh, Peter is really rather more of a, a, a scholar than I am, and indeed as a as, a, as an aficionado of Greek tragedy, uh, will know that the world can always get worse. Uh, you never quite hit bottom. You can always dig through that concrete floor and make sure you get one inch closer to hell. But the challenge is not at how do we race down, but how do we uh, reach up? And I think there are some real opportunities for us. Indeed, what we're doing today, whereas I'm sitting here, in uh, a deep dark wintry uh, Kent and you're sitting uh, I presume somewhere in New England uh, and despite the winter probably in all the glories of the colours of the, the fire that, uh, that, that hits the leaves of New England in, in the winter in the autumn and winter uh, we're in uh, we're enjoying each other's company well at least I'm enjoying yours you're probably not feeling quite the same but uh, we're enjoying each other's company uh, through the joys of technology but this technology has accelerated globalization has accelerated uh, rentier states through uh, the ownership of intellectual property and your ability to tax it and change the way in which people interact, not just uh, with their own governments, but indeed with the entire world. And of course, uh, most importantly, with their neighbours. So we're going through a profound moment of change uh, in the world. And I think that's making foreign affairs extremely interesting and extremely challenging. So 
on that note, I will open it up to questions, but I just, I must quickly answer Peter's first question or first point, which is, this is the end of the Brexit process. Oh no, Peter, not even slightly. The last 3000 years of English history, Scottish history, Welsh history, and indeed Irish history has been, how do we work together? How do we deal with each other? And how do we deal with those people who are 20 miles, 30 miles off our coast? And do you know what the next 3000 years is gonna be about? Exactly the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> thanks for that, Tom. And uh, we will definitely welcome you back here to, uh, to Boston College. Uh, maybe even in the fall, uh, maybe we'll have a football game and, and we can get some lobster and clam chatter and give you the real New England experience. I am indeed um, speaking to you from, from Chestnut Hill, um, and, but it's a good question because we could really literally be anywhere. Um, you've been talking about disruption and um, the UK's relationship uh, with the continent. Let's start there. Um, I think very interestingly, I mean, you, you're a, a Tory party uh, politician, but you did not support um, Brexit. I mean, where do you see this going at this point? What are the main dangers for you? Just last week, in fact, I think you said, if there isn't a deal done, it's a failure of statecraft. Um, and, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why, what that failure will mean, not only for um, the UK, but but maybe for the for Europe as well. Sure. Well, look. In fact, uh, much as I'd love to claim credit for those words, they weren't mine. They actually come from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And it's interesting that only a, only a few months ago he recognised that a failure to get an agreement between Britain and the countries that make up 40, 50 percent of our trade would be a failure of statecraft. Of course, it's a failure of statecraft. Whose failure? Well, there's plenty of blame to go around for everyone, frankly. It's a failure of uh, the UK, of course, but it's also a failure of the European Union and of different members uh, within it. So the question is what next, really? Because as you rightly say, I didn't vote for it, but there's no point in, in, in trying to vote on yesterday. You've got to try and shape tomorrow. And I think the decision for those of us who are active participants in politics and who want to make sure that foreign policy works for the British people, and let's not forget the reason we pay Peter uh, to go to New England is not to eat clam chowder and lobsters, delicious though they are, it's actually to promote the prosperity and happiness of the British people. That's it. We're not interested, frankly, in the prosperity and happiness in the US people or the Canadian people or the French people or any other people. We're interested in the prosperity and happiness of the British people. Of course, that's not achievable unless we have the prosperity and happiness of our friends and allies around the world. And that's where you guys come in. But the prime job quote, to misquote uh, somebody else who's been quite loud in political circles for, for, for the last four years, is, is Britain first, of course. That is literally the job of every government. It's not possible unless you factor in other people, but you have got to prioritise your interests. And now this is where we find ourselves with Europe. We've got to prioritise our interests, but too much of the uh, emphasis can sometimes be on ourselves and not on how our interests are prioritized, because actually our interests are prioritized by having a prosperous and dynamic European Union a, and European partners who we can trade with, we can travel to, we can interact with on any number of different levels, uh, so that actually our people are extremely happy in going on holiday to France or studying in Germany or buying stuff from Italy or whatever it happens to be, uh, because that is important to us. Now, there's also the reverse is true, which is that for many of us, there is a sadness that the European Union is doing rather too much of what, of course, it has to do, which is to prioritise the prosperity and the happiness of its own people. But in doing so, I think it's uh, 
being a little bit uh, too narrow because it should realize, and I hope does realize, that actually the United Kingdom isn't going anywhere. The United Kingdom is an essential partner, not just in trade, but also in culture and uh, in defense and security and so many other areas uh, that promote all of our interests that we really do need to make these talks work. Now, the challenge for the next few years is not just whether or not the UK economy will uh, grow a little bit more slowly than it would have done had we got a deal. It's actually how does the European continent work together? And what does this mean for some of those countries that are more challenging for the European Union? I don't just mean the UK, I mean some member states, I mean some non-member states. But finding ways in which this works requires the European Union, as well as us, uh, to be adaptable and to be uh, sensible uh, in the face of political, not just legal challenges. Um, Tom, a couple of years ago, or maybe it was earlier this year, in fact, um, I, I heard you on uh, The Week in Westminster, and you said that um, perhaps London's most important re foreign relation is, is with Dublin. And in another place uh, I was reading, you, you were talking about the importance of building relationships with key European partners, Germany, France, and then most essentially Ireland. So, you know, kind of in that context, what does um, the new... You know, British partnership with the UK look like, or with Ireland look like, and you know, how does Northern Ireland fit into that? That's a, that obviously is a, is a big area of uh, concern for us here in, in Massachusetts. Sure. Well, look, I'm I'm always uh, struck when people describe uh, U.S. politicians. This has been said of uh, President-elect Biden recently, when they describe U.S. politicians as being you know, pro-Ireland, as though this is a bad thing for the UK. It's not. It's a very good thing for the UK. We want political leaders around the world to be interested in the fate of our islands. And that means being pro-Irish, being pro-British are absolutely fundamental. Anybody who backs the Good Friday Accord, frankly, is a friend of mine. Uh, I don't care where they're from, it's important. And it's important not just because it brought peace to the island of Ireland, we know that it did that, but it did much more than that. I mean, many of your uh, st students may not know, but when I was going to school in London in the 1980s, the underground was regularly stopped because there was a bomb on it. And every now and again, a few people were killed. Uh, and this happened, I mean, all the time across England, uh, in Manchester, in Reading, in Deal, in Kent, uh, and in London, you know, there were constantly political murders, terrorism, um, spread by the Irish Republican Army. So, you know, this was something that we saw all the time. So the Good Friday Accord didn't just bring peace to the island of Ireland, it brought peace to the United Kingdom and to the Republic of Ireland, and this was hugely important. Now, I, I prioritise the relationship with Ireland for the simple reason that it is the single non-discretionary relationship that the UK has. At enormous expense, and I certainly don't recommend this, but at enormous expense, and with great difficulty, we could just about cut off relations with every other country in the world, one country we can't is with Ireland. It's not just because it's the only land border we have, but it's because Ireland and the UK are just much, much closer than I think many people realize. It would be very hard to find uh, an Englishman who doesn't have strong Irish connections. It, it's pretty difficult. Even somebody who's uh, you know, as, as English as I am, you know, my great grandparents, uh, great grandmother, sorry, is from Limerick in, uh, on the west coast of Ireland. This is absolutely standard for anybody in the UK. You know, the level of the level of cross relationships is, is huge. And it's it really means that peace in Ireland, relationships with Ireland, a relationship with 
TDs and Taoiseachs, uh, you know, over the years is absolutely vital. And that's why when I took over the chairmanship of the Foreign Affairs Committee, our first trip was not, uh, as some others have been, to sort of sunny places uh, with uh, good beaches, but actually it was uh, for a day in Dublin and a night in Cavan on the border, because actually what happens in Cavan matters in Kent. That, that's really interesting to, to hear. I mean, do you feel as though the, the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and the agreement reached uh, earlier this week um, adequately protects uh, the security of the Good Friday Agreement and ensures a good relationship uh, between Britain and Ireland, regardless of the outcome of, of the Brexit uh, negotiations? No, and it can't, because the uh, Good Friday Accord was built on the basis of an economic cooperation underpinned by joint membership of the European Union. So there really is nothing that can be added to, uh, you know, in the, on a temporary basis, unless we get an economic relationship that works for both sides. Now, at the moment, we, we don't have that. It's one of the reasons we need an agreement. And one of the other reasons why, if we don't get an agreement on whenever it is, you know, today, tomorrow, Sunday, I don't know when the last day is gonna be, but you know, whenever the last day is, um, we're simply gonna have to come back on the 1st of January and start again, um, you know, because, the idea that we can have uh, a questionable uh, relationship with our, with our closest and most important foreign partner, the Republic of Ireland, and that this could bring instability to our single land border, the Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland border, is simply not acceptable. And it's not acceptable whether you live in Kent, as I do, whether you live in Liverpool, where many people uh, who have relations in Ireland uh, have traditionally landed, or, or whether it is uh, because you live in Antrim or in Dundalk or indeed in Cavan. So, you know, it's absolutely essential for all of us that we get a really good economic uh, agreement that allows uh, trade to continue. It's also worth remembering, of course, that Ireland uh, in many ways is not a split island. You know, it has a single electricity market. It has a single phytosanitary system. It is in many ways a single market of itself. That, that's a that's a good point. It's hard to imagine um, the the island itself functioning um, in, in distinct kind of ways if you've been back and forth across the border and done any done any work there. Um, I'm going to point out to the audience that there is um, a chat function as well as a question and answer function. Uh, please send in questions and and uh, we'll try to get them over to Tom. Tom, a question has come in from one of the viewers um, talking about a New York Times report today that British ports are, are jammed um, and that uh, that the the Honda production plant is um, having some supply chain issues um, in expectation of a Brexit crash out. Um, I mean, is there a danger here as, you know, if an agreement is reached or if an agreement isn't reached, that people are already kind of out in front of that, that corporations are out in front of that, um, taking defensive kind of actions, you know, such as uh, the Honda plant. I mean, where are the challenges around this for you and as this kind of conversation comes to a crunch point? Sure, but look, most people have been out in front of this by about two years. I mean, it's, it's you'd have to be pretty laid off the mark to be, to, to be, at the point now. And it's worth thinking about the Honda uh, question and a little bit more of a global context, because actually much of that is to do with the fact that trade uh, in Europe has been very slow this year for rather obvious COVID related reasons. And that has depressed um, shipping rates and therefore uh, many transport vessels have not been uh, as active in, in our area as they would have been in normal times. And instead shipping has been much more active in Southeast Asia and indeed in the cross Pacific route. So look, we're, we're seeing 
Uh, in fact, uh, the sort of uh, for those of you who've been to London, we're, this is the London bus problem, no buses for ages and then three come at once. That's a little bit what's happened to our ports because of the uh, problem with shipping rates or rather the problem with economic uh, activity and therefore the consequence, uh, consequential knock-on onto uh, shipping supply lines uh, that, that we've seen now. But look, the, that's not to say that there aren't uh, challenges, there really are, but the challenges are less likely to come in non-perishable goods like car parts much more likely to come uh, if they do come uh, in terms of things like fresh salad and, and uh, fresh goods uh, in January. So I, I, something that those of us in Kent who are, as you know, not only the garden of England, but also uh, the gateway to Europe are ex especially aware of. Um, there's obviously been been a lot of prep for um, a no deal in, in Europe and in Britain. We've heard a lot about the, the preparations in Kent and, and the roadside accommodations. I mean, what are for, for you? I mean, what are the key things that need to happen now to ensure that there are good relationships, that people are able to continue to move, that goods are able to continue to move? What, what needs to happen between now and the end of the year to ensure the whole system doesn't seize up? Well, the fundamental things are we need to get the accords that allow uh, things like haulage permits uh, to work on both sides of the channel, that we get um, waivers for uh, you know, tariffs and quotas, otherwise this can really delay things. And, and we need uh, the infrastructure investment uh, in the UK to match that of France. I mean, I was speaking to Xavier Bertrand, who is the uh, president of the um, France, which is the area, the, the, the region of France around Calais and Boulogne and all that area. Um, that really controls the access, if you like, in many ways, it's the access point to the United Kingdom. And the investment that they've made over the last few years is really quite uh, substantial in terms of sort of holding errors and all the rest of it. But he is just as aware as we are that delays on what's called the short straits, that Dover-Calais link, can have a huge implication. I mean, at the moment, uh, you know, it takes quite literally seconds for trucks to be cleared and go through. I can't remember whether it's 20 or 30 seconds, but it's really not very long. If, you, uh, if that check goes into uh, any more detail, you're immediately into two or three minutes at the, very, at the very shortest. And the moment you do that, you cause delays on both sides of the border. And that means trucks literally parked on the side of the motorway for miles uh, before the borders. And so, you know, before the crossing points. And so people on both sides of the frontier are extremely aware, aware of it. And Xavier Bertrand has been communicating, I know, very clearly with the government in Paris, as uh, just as those of us in Kent have been extremely clear, clear with the government in Westminster, that we really need to make sure that the uh, throughput of traffic is uh, is kept going. Um, Tom, interesting question is coming here, and it, it, it's um, it's been raised before, and, and this will help us bridge the the distance between Brexit and some other issues. Um, you know, this the, the questioner points out that the um, that the trade protections that were stripped um, from the withdrawal agreement have been now been kind of rectified um, in in the changes that have been made to the internal market bill. But they this this questioner would like to know, um, you know, has Britain damaged its ability to act as a good faith negotiator? Um, by by introducing the internal market bill, the question actually reads that this is this kind of action threaten um, you know future um, potential trade agreements with with the United States and, and with with other companies. I think it's a good question in context, especially of you know this idea of global Britain and Britain having you know more mature or more maturely developed relationships with partners around around the world. I think it's an entirely fair question. And when I uh, spoke uh, about the internal markets bill in the House of Commons, 
I made the point, which I think I'm sorry to say still stands, which is that this was a staggeringly unwise move by Her Majesty's government because uh, it sold, um, it allowed people to cast us in a, in a rather poor light. But I would put it in the way that um, some of us may be sadly aware of when we've seen friends of ours get divorced uh, and do things that we think of as particularly vile, but really rather out of character. Uh, and we may not be supportive of it, but we do understand that divorce battles are acrimonious and nasty and we can't judge people uh, by the way they deal with their uh, spouse and the way that they're going to deal with everybody else. And it's certainly true that if you speak to um, other trading partners that we've uh, dealt with in recent years, whether that be you know Canada, who did, we finally did the rollover deal with not very long ago, two, three days ago, or Singapore yesterday, and I've been in conversation with both of their governments in recent weeks and months, you know, it's quite clear that um, you know, they saw it for what it was, which is um, part of a rather acrimonious negotiation uh, with a long-standing uh, partner, rather than uh, a, a trend for the future. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a, you know, that's not an excuse. That's an explanation. Um, and uh, and as I told the prime minister to his face, I thought it was a dumb thing to do. I think. Um... I think a lot of our audience is interested to hear that. Um, you know, Tom, thinking about global Britain, I went back and I read some of the policy position papers um, and then some of the speeches uh, by the prime minister on it. And um, in 2018, this term seems to have been uh, kind of pushed out into the public sphere. In February, interestingly, of this previous, earlier this year, the prime minister spoke in, in Greenwich and he spoke about uh, global Britain. And the speech was mainly about uh, free trade um, and being able to to trade with others around the world. But your committee has been undertaking a very ambitious project to take a look at international policy of the UK. Global Britain is part of that. Um, and in a recent policy position paper that you released, you said people really don't know what global Britain means. So, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about this process? What are you hoping to um, achieve out of this? Are you hoping to define what global Britain is or, or give it more shape? So we can't bluntly do that. Um, what we're trying to do is challenge the government to do it because you know, um, I know that you in the United States are used to having staffs of thousands in your political bodies. And you know, I was speaking to my opposite number in, in the US Senate uh, who was saying that uh, you know, they, they normally have an away day for his 50 staff. I have four staff and those four staff work on constituency matters. Everything to do with the Foreign Affairs Committee is done by me and done by four staff in parliament. That's it. You know, it's a much, much smaller uh, operation. So we're not, you know, we don't run um, a large number of uh, civil servants. We don't have party employees. We don't have any of the trappings of a, a, a committee that the United States House or Senate has. So it's worth putting that into context. And we produce, so I write, I write the reports myself. They're not, they're not staffed through in the way that, in the way that the, the US system uh, are. And that, and that, you know, that naturally means that it's much harder to, um, to, 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 to come up with alternatives in the same way um, that, the, that the government is able to do. So what we do is uh, we put up uh, questions and we challenge the government to, to answer them. And in this one, look, I think the question on what is global Britain is absolutely fundamental. It's, it's a slogan that the prime minister has used and used when he was foreign secretary that still doesn't yet mean anything but yet it hints to something that I think that we understand. We understand it means Britain no longer uh, entirely part of Europe. It means Britain somehow in the Indo-Pacific. It means somehow Britain in Australia and South America. It means quite a lot of things that are very hard to nail down. 
and until we do nail them down, are uh, a bit too vague to be put into practice. So what we're trying to get the Foreign Office to do, and, uh, and Peter's part of this process, I have no doubt at all, um, is to say, what does it mean? Does it mean uh, supporting colleges like yours? Does it mean uh, opening up to free trade? Or is it, are we looking for free movement? What, what is it exactly we're challenging for? Uh, what are you hoping to develop um, or what are you hoping that the government takes away from it? I mean, the, I, I read some of the testimony that was delivered. You, you've had very eminent people, including Samantha Powers gave some remarkable testimony uh, to, to the- Exceptional, testimony. absolutely yeah, exceptional. It was really interesting reading. Um, and uh, you have to dig a little bit in the website um, in order to get to <laughs> the raw material, but it's there and um, it, it's quite interesting. And, and there's a lot of exchange between yourself and, and Samantha Power about um, multilateral organizations and, and and the importance of the veto in these. I mean, what do you, what are the things you want the government to do policy-wise, you know, from the, your findings? So my, my view, and this is, uh, you know, this is personal rather than, uh, rather than committee view, my view is that the United Kingdom does actually have a role in the world. And if we're, if we're going to uh, exercise uh, influence uh, in the coming years, then it's by recognizing what our strengths are and not pretending that they are other than they are. You know, we're not going to be uh, sending uh, gunboats to foreign ports anymore in the way that we did two, three hundred years ago. And we're certainly not going to be, um, you know, running uh, the, the entire world's trading system as we did, uh, you know, over a century ago. Instead, what we're going to be doing, if we are going to be successful, is to leverage the skills that we really do have, which is, if you like, the bureaucracy of power by, you know, uh, supplying the the fantastic civil servants, Peter is but one example, but the fantastic civil servants who enable uh, any number of different international organisations from the UN uh, right the way through to uh, many of the you know many of the NATO operations and indeed many of the temporary um, multilateral organisations that are set up to, to 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 enable cooperation, and we're going to leverage all of that. Uh, and effectively become, uh, I think, uh, an enabling power. You know, already in, in the last uh, few years, we've noticed that there are, in reality, only two global hegemons, and they are the United States and China, and both of them have uh, challenges to the international order. You know, the last four years of the United States power has put in question for some people uh, the United States commitment both to NATO and the UN and other forms of multilateralism, certainly the withdrawal from the World Health Organization during a global pandemic has been surprising. Uh, and China's uh, breaches of in international protocols and international norms has also been challenging the international order. So I think countries like the United Kingdom have a very important role, if you like, as, as sort of second tier powers, though perhaps that's not the polite way of putting it, but the uh, but, the, uh, but those countries, Japan, us, Germany, uh, Australia, many others who are fundamentally dependent on the international rules-based system and really need to invest in making it work. And so I think the UK can be a coordinator, can be an enabler for those things. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think we need to find ourselves in the US position or the Chinese position of attempting to lead these organizations, but certainly enabling them so that the defense of the international order uh, is done by many, many, many smaller countries, which I think, uh, as we know from uh, the internet and many other things, a distributed network of power is often more stable and more secure uh, than a polar network. And so I hope that that is where the UK can go. 
Um, what do you expect the future of uh, the US-UK relationship to look like as, as you become an enabler, um, but also as you know, the Biden administration begins to bed down? Biden administration, I mean, has laid out some very clear, um, I think, priorities, especially around climate change with the appointment of um, you know, Secretary Kerry to a new board level, um, a cabinet level position on climate, or a re-engagement with um, you know, the, the World Health Organization, an engagement uh, on a vaccine distribution program for um, you know, less wealthy nations. As the Trump administration leaves and, and the Biden administration kind of beds in, I mean, what's your relationship going to be like um, with your counterparts in the United States? And, and what do you hope the US and the UK can do together um, in the future? Well, look, I, I, I have to say I'm personally particularly pleased with many of the appointments that the Biden administration has made. Many of them I've known for many years. Some of them I worked with in Afghanistan in the uh, 2000s or um, when I was military assistant to the chief of the defense staff of the United Kingdom uh, in the early 2010 to 2013. You know, these are really good people. And, and there are many fantastic names. You mentioned uh, one there. But I, I mean, you know, I think Tony Blinken is an outstanding choice for Secretary of State. And I think Jake Sullivan as National Security Advisor is a, a fantastic appointment. I mean, really, really good appointment. So there are some great people there. And I think actually, there's an awful lot of overlap between what the Biden administration is trying to achieve and what the UK government is trying to achieve, and certainly what the British people are trying to achieve. You know, we do want to uh, work on uh, helping China to grow within a stable rules-based uh, order rather than by breaking the system around it. Now, that does mean helping China to challenge it, channel, excuse me, channel its power uh, rather than just to challenge uh, power around the world. So what does that mean? It means working on things like environmental diplomacy, I think things like carbon pricing uh, to help both onshoring jobs and also to, uh, to help promote some of the environmental policies we know we need uh, in order to uh, reverse where we're going at the moment. Uh, and, and I think there's an awful lot to do on that. I also think, by the way, that uh, some of the US leadership that we see in other ways uh, is really inspiring. I don't know how many of you have noticed, but the chief, uh, the head of the uh, World Food Programme, uh, former governor of South Carolina, uh, David Beasley, uh, has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, this is uh, US leadership in an international, in a multinational context that I think is frankly inspiring and uh, really, really impressive. I mean, genuinely world-changing and important. And I think, you know, seeing how the UK can work with people like uh, David Beasley, I know he'll qualify as a UN winner rather than a US winner, but you know what I mean, uh, I think is really important. And, you know, let's see how uh, your new appointment to the uh, UN uh, ambassador works, but I think she's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic leader in her field. And I have to say General Lloyd is, uh, General Austin, sorry, is, is, a, is a fantastic, uh, a, a fantastic commander who I, he didn't know me, I was far too junior, but he, but I knew him uh, in, in Iraq. And, uh, and he's, uh, you know, he's again a very impressive appointment. So let's see, uh, let's see how this goes. Um, just remind the audience, we only have a few minutes left in uh, this session. So if you have a question, please ask it now. Tom, questions come in um, on the U.S., U.K., Europe. Irish relationship. Um, this, this, this questioner um, references a story from Le Mans talking about how Ireland will essentially become the Europe whisperer for the United States. It was often rumored that the UK played this role. Of course, the United States has 
many relationships abroad and, and at different multiple levels. The US and the UK are bound together by NATO and, and, and Five Eyes and other aspects. But I mean, how do you see this relationship developing? Um, you know, there are a lot of people uh, and organizations in Ireland who, who now talk about one of Ireland's competitive advantages is that it's in Europe and it's English speaking. Um, do, do you see this as a, 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 a challenge or a rival to what the UK is doing, or is it a compliment to, you know, no, I think, the direction of gold Britain's going? I mean, I think it complements it. And, and you know, let's, let's not overstate the, uh, the benefit of language. I mean, Tony Blinken is a qualified French lawyer who grew up in France and is a fluent French speaker. So I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that Tony Blinken will see the advantage in, in speaking English when his French is literally perfect so, and completely fluent. And there are many other people in the US uh, system who speak uh, you know, German, Italian, and, and, and many other European languages, not all, not all just for family reasons, but just, you know, uh, I, I don't think Peter speaks uh, ancient Greek for family reasons. I think, I think that was probably a, a hobby that developed. But, you know, I mean, there are many, there are many people in the US system who've got fantastic uh, linguistic abilities. That doesn't mean that Ireland doesn't have an important part in, 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 in you know, an important part in this relationship. And it's certainly true that people like uh, President-elect Biden uh, have spent a lot of time getting to know Ireland for personal reasons initially, I'm sure, but, but you know, for uh, reasons of peace and prosperity as well uh, more recently. And, and I think that's fantastic because, you know, I, I mean, as I, as I started off saying, the relationship with Ireland is the single non-discretionary relationship that the UK has. The prosperity of Ireland is therefore fundamentally in the interest of the prosper of, of the British people, and the ability of Ireland to influence um, you know, the actions of one of our most important allies is absolutely key. And so I think that actually having the Irish Republic uh, in the European Union and having uh, Britain in NATO gives the United States both strength in depth and in breadth. Uh, that is difficult to match in other ways. So I'm, I'm you know, I, it's easy when you uh, look at a relationship like with the 27 uh, European Union countries to see that there's one link or one bridge. There isn't, there'll be many. And the reality is that Britain will have different ends to Germany, for example, than the US will or to France or whatever. You know, our single, our, our closest defense relationship outside the Five Eyes is with France. You know, we actually have British pilots flying French planes. We have British generals commanding French troops. You know, we have, and by the way, and the other way around. I mean, we, it, it's an it's an exchange program. In some ways, it's it, it's closer uh, than almost any other country in the world. And our closest intelligence partnerships are with you know the United States, Five Eyes, of course, with Israel. Next, Germany, very very close intelligence partnership. So you know, these relationships are more complex, they're more varied, and they don't just go through Brussels. So it's it's it, one should be cautious about overstating it. Excellent, thanks. Um, you know, Tom, one thing I really want to ask you before we do get off here um, is about the Britain's commitment to overseas aid development. A, a couple of years ago, UK showed real leadership by committing 0.7% of GDP to overseas aid development. Um, Chancellor cut that budget this year in the context of the COVID crisis, but went a little bit further in, in seeking a law change around this, a legal change. Um, I mean, you know, what do you think, um, what do you recommend for the, the future of the following Commonwealth and, and the development office actually? And, and that's another issue as well your, your committee's been dealing with is that the combination of these two um, Whitehall departments um, into, into the one. 
So look, I think the uh, coordination of um, aid and diplomacy uh, is an important thing to do. And by the way, the United States does it. Uh, the UK was one of only two countries that had a split department. So bringing them into uh, alignment brings us into alignment with, you know, Canada and Australia and the United States and France and Germany. You know, so it, let's not pretend that the UK has suddenly sort of sold out. Actually, we've just come into line with everybody else by bringing them into line. And given, sadly, the nature of uh, global development needs, you know, the idea that we shouldn't align global development needs with uh, those areas where we can also maximize uh, diplomatic influence uh, is absurd. Of course, we should try and uh, align diplomatic influence with development action, because that's where we're going to achieve the best results. And we're going to be able to therefore help the most people, biggest bang for our buck, as you like, if you like. Uh, and so it's absolutely important that we do that. And that, by the way, means also aligning with friends and allies and making sure that that investment uh, works uh, together. But the cut in aid, look, this isn't something that, um, I've got to be honest, it's not something that I'm pleased with. I, you know, I, I, I would like not to see it happen. But I can't argue, in all honesty, that COVID hasn't, you know, done enormous damage to the UK economy. And it's very difficult as well to argue uh, that we should be spending more billions abroad when we so clearly need to be reinforcing our own economy at home. This is, this is not exactly a surprise. Um, it's also worth noting that actually the, all that the Chancellor did was he took 0.2% off aid and put it on defence. It was just a uh, it was a very simple accounting trick. We're still spending 2.7% on the abroad. It's just instead of it being 2% on defence and 0.7% on aid, it's now 2.2% on defence and 0.5% on aid. But still that puts us, you know, as one of the highest aid contributors in the world. The United States only spends 0.2%. And now, of course, that's not quite true because other areas of US spending, like, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, don't count in that 0 to 0.2% and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is, amongst other things, the second largest contributor to the World Health Organization, as well as many other organizations around the world. So it's not an entirely uh, fair comparison, but you, you get the point. The other country that donates a huge amount is Japan, which uh, donates 0.4%. So again, in some ways less than the, according to GNI calculations, less than the UK, even though the, the quantum is greater. Uh, and this means that actually the only country in the European Union, by the way, that will be uh, giving more in percentage terms than us is Germany. Uh, and so it's worth putting in context that although, you know, I wish that we maintained our level of overseas influence, that's hardly surprising. I do chair the Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee, which is kind of one of the things I'm interested in. I, I think it would be unwise uh, to start sort of panicking as though this was sort of the end of the world. It's certainly not. The UK is still one of the most generous nations uh, in the world donating i think it's now going to be about 10 billion pounds a year uh, and uh, although that will change of course because the gni figures will adjust uh, as the covid crisis uh, hits us uh, and still maintains uh, the two percent target that nato asks for uh, which again puts us into a very very small camp so you know britain's overseas commitment as the holders of, you know, the maintainers of most of two targets and uh, having a global diplomatic network and a P5C, frankly, you know, the UK still plays a very, very hard uh, international game. 
Great. Well, thank you, Tom, for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been a real pleasure to hear from you. And I can't wait to welcome you back uh, or welcome you to Boston College. And uh, as I said, we'll be sure to roll out the lobster from the clam chowder. Uh, but I, I do think our, you know, our students and the community here um, would love to hear from further from you, especially as we see more, um, you know, from Brexit and, and more developments as, as you as you discussed in, in, in the international affairs. If um, the audience hasn't had a chance to take a look at Tom's um, heritage, please do. It's interesting for me to note that you studied at Bristol and you studied uh, for a degree in theology. Um, of course, if you come here to Boston College, you can study for a degree in theology in one of two schools. We have a, a school of theology and ministry where we trained professionals, and we have a department of theology and comparative religion. So uh, you'd be welcome to, I think, and, and people will be interested to hear from you in, in both of them. Um, I'd like to just remind the audience that uh, our next webinar is on Tuesday, December 15th with Connor Murphy, uh, Sinn Féin MLA, and uh, Minister for Finance uh, from the Northern Ireland Executive. In the new year, we'll be welcoming uh, Diane Dodds, um, and Helen McEntee, the Minister uh, for Justice uh, from Ireland. Right. There's a few more in the way. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really do appreciate it. We're going to uh, keep a close um, attention on, on what you have to say and, and how you're holding the government um, to account on, on its foreign obligations. Thank you. Thank you. T take care. Thank you for joining us today as we work to enhance Boston College's presence and impact in the world by building trust, community, and dialogue. Please visit our website, bc.edu, for more information on today's speaker and follow us on Twitter, at GLI at BC, or find us on LinkedIn, Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Mm -hmm.